is to do this last modern revolution thing with Truman. And then my uh, final class this semester um, before Christmas break is to do what do we do now? And so this, I want to get through that. He's going to say, okay, how did we get here? This is the sum, this is his summary lecture. It's about 20 minutes long. And what he's going to do is he's going to walk you through the modern world in which we live. So in other words, we've been through all these different thinkers. We've done through all this history. He's going to sum up where we've come and give you three examples, three kind of areas in our modern world that are going to give you like how we got here. And then what do we do about it? And then next week, and this is where I'm going to bring a bunch of stuff in is now what do we do about it? Like, what kind of advice do we have? How can we be countercultural? How can we be faithful? How can we address these issues? What can we do personally? What can we do as a church? What can we do as a community? Um, one of the things we're going to talk about next week is also the doctrine of the two kingdoms a little bit in terms of what stuff that's more for the church and what stuff more for like the political arena, right? Those are different things. Um, they influence each other. Uh, you'll have, I have a guy named Joel Bierman. He's a professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And he'll uh, use his hands. He'll say something like, you know, if they're too mixed, we got a problem because now you've got the church telling, you know, the government telling you where to worship and how to worship. But if they're too far opposed, we got another problem, right? Because that's, that means it's like they influence each other and they keep in their realms and they're not, you can't have one without the other in this life, but you got to be careful on this. So it's the Doctor of Two Kingdoms. So that'll come up next week as we rightly divide like how we do that. So that's kind of where we're headed next week is that. And then second semester, if you're wanting to stick around, is when we do critical theories. So things like when you hear things like critical race theory or critical gender studies or intersectionality or problematizing or oppression and privilege and fragility and all these weird terms that are being thrown out there, that's what we're going to do next. Um, that's the next section. So now that we've established how individuals look at themselves, which is this, now we get to see how individuals look at themselves in society and how society organizes itself um, and we go bigger. So a lot of the stuff you've heard in the news, this is the stuff that almost everybody assumes without even thinking about it. Right. That's kind of why I'm doing this first. We get to the second semester. Then it's really we're going to do some uh, some Bible study, because what happens is, is you hear words like oppression or justice or those terms. And what do we mean by those terms? And what does the world mean by those terms are sometimes very different things, because the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, is all about the oppressed sometimes, especially like books like Amos. You know, let justice flow. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. made that uh, uh, very famous in one of his uh, speeches. But what people mean by those terms, how do you define justice, right, is going to be a big thing. What do you, how do you define oppression, right? How do you define injustice is going to be a thing. So we'll use Vodi Bakum, um, that African-American pastor. We'll look at him a little bit. Um, we'll look at, uh, there's about three or four books written about this, some better than others, that are really, really helpful. One's called Why Biblical Justice is Not Social Justice. That's an interesting one. That's intentionally provocative. Another one is um, about reaching out without compromise, that's another good one. And it's very compassionate. And it talks about two different versions of what social justice actually is. Um, we're going to go through all that stuff because how you view yourself is then going to say, look at society at large. You're going to, it'll make a lot, a lot of logical sense because if you view yourself as an inherently, for example, a woman trapped in a man's body and society is oppressing me. Now, when you organize, organize yourself together and there's a whole group of you and you advertise this in the political sphere, you get things like critical gender studies. Right. You see what I mean? Because it's like that you, in order for that to be a legitimate source of inquiry, you have to assume certain things about yourself first. Right. So that's why this is foundational. And then we'll talk about what the church can do and what we as individuals can do um, throughout the semester. So this should be kind of fun um, today. Uh, he's going to sum this stuff up. You'll recognize those first four points that you have underlined there. And then this first one in law, we're going to spend some time on this one. Hopefully I can get through most of this. If not, it's OK. 
if we end on this uh, next week, because it's again, the what we're going to do about it anyways. Um, but I think we're going to get through most of this. But the stuff on the law in particular is going to take a second. I've actually already referenced this court decision, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992. I actually already referenced this when I talked about natural law. I had an excursus on natural law. It's going to come back now. He's going to reference it for a different reason. Uh, you're going to find out that that court decision has way more ramifications than anybody thought at the time. Uh, and he's going to do a good job showing how this is. And then you're going to get two modern cases, uh, or at least more modern, Obergefell versus Hodges, which legalized gay marriage in all 50 states, 2015. And then the Bostock uh, decision from only like two years ago. Um, and he mentions this one. And they're logical continuations. They're not like things that just came out of the blue. They make sense in a way. What I like about this class is it makes you a little less disoriented. It starts to put like not only a face behind it, but it gives you kind of like the logic and the reason behind why these decisions are being made. And so let's go ahead and start. And then when we get to the law one, be prepared. I'm going to pause and we're going to have some talk about this because there's some stuff in this law one. You can tell I teach, I, I teach government, right? In my other day, my other job. And so uh, it'll, it'll make, I can help make this a little bit, make a little bit more sense what he's saying and why in the legalese people talk the way they do um, when it comes to the, we would call this the kingdom of the left, right? The left-handed kingdom. All right, here we go. Let's hear Truman, and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely pause in a little bit. We've covered an awful lot of ground in this short series, and as we come down to Lecture 8, I want to give a, a brief summary and then look at a few contemporary examples of how some of the uh, lines that I've been tracing out manifest themselves in ways in society that really uh, have an impact upon us all and about which we should all be concerned and have opinions. But to go back to my very first lecture, if you remember, I said there were four things that I was particularly interested in in the modern world that characterized the modern world in contrast to cultures that had gone before. I said the modern person is characterized by what I denoted as expressive individualism. That is the idea that today to be fully you means to give public and social expression to that which you feel inside rather than looking around to society, if you like, and finding out what we need to learn in order to conform, we tend to think of the real us as that which is within us. We use words like authentic. He's an authentic person. What you see is what you get. What you get outwardly is what he is inwardly. We prize spontaneity. People who do things, you know, apparently because it just wells up from within them. Expressive individualism. And we see the roots of that, said, in Rousseau. Even in an odd way, we, we see it in Freud, certainly in Nietzsche and in Oscar Wilde. I also said that the modern person sees happiness as an inward sense of psychological satisfaction. If I had a longer time, I'd trace out the intimate connection that exists between this and expressive individualism. Suffice it to say that this is really the underlying theme from Rousseau onwards, that happiness, happiness is ultimately an internal state, an internal psychological feeling. Even Marx's concept of alienation touches on that kind of notion of happiness as well. I also said the modern world is a world that sees all things imminently. What I meant by that is the modern world is one where really the, the appeal to something transcendent, the appeal to an order, a sacred order beyond this social order in which we exist, a sacred world beyond this secular world where we find ourselves, the appeal to such an order for authority is now profoundly implausible. 
And we saw that in many of our thinkers. The Romantics, in some ways, were trying to maintain some sort of transcendence through their adoration of the power of nature. But certainly when we come to Marx and Nietzsche, Freud and Reich, we have profoundly eminent thinkers. They do not look beyond to anything sacred in order to make sense of this world or to frame their politics. This world is all that there is. They are, in a sense, radical materialists on that front. And again, that's often how many of us think about the world, isn't it? Even many Christians sort of, yes, believe in God, but don't particularly allow that belief to shape how they think about the everyday world and their everyday interactions with people. And finally, I said that a fourth aspect of the modern world was the sexual revolution. We talked about that last with uh, Wilhelm Reich and how sexual codes, sexual morality has come to be not simply modified in our contemporary world, but we might say completely overthrown because sexual codes have come to be seen as oppressive as preventing and hindering both that expressive individualism that's so important, my ability to behave outwardly as I feel inwardly, and also as inhibiting that happiness as psychological satisfaction. If the purpose of society is to make as many people happy as possible, then the unleashing of sexual instincts, the abolition of sexual codes, becomes important. And we saw in the work of Wilhelm Reich how he formulated a specific politics around this notion of the overthrowing, the dismantling of sexual codes. So that's a sort of overview of the course as a whole. What I want to do now, now in the remaining... So with that in mind, um, forgive my grammatical faux pas, by the way, under the parentheses, I, I switched things around, so now the uh, singular plural agreement is wrong. Um, but it should say sexual codes inhibit expressive individualism and inhibit happiness and are a tool. So that's my fault for my, uh, my rushing on that. So that's just forgive my grammatical faux pas there, please. If you want to correct it for me, feel free. Um, but uh, that's, he does a good job summing that up. So this is the area and how far we've gone, right? Most of you who have been here recognize this. This is kind of the, the, the modern self is defined by these things. Now, if I had to point out one, this is going to go to the end discussion. If I had to point out the one that is the most important in terms of philosophy, it's actually the third. And the reason that is, is it gives you justification for the others. In other words, how can you justify that there's no transcendent order? Well, if the universe is all there is, well, then you can justify that, right? It gives you a reason for that. If there's nothing that you're accountable to, then it's easy to say, well, there's no God, so I can do whatever I want. Or there is a reality. There's no such thing as a common humanity. It's whatever I feel. You see what I mean? That third one is the big philosophical kind of elephant in the room, even though most people don't know that it is. Most people are emotional. Most people are not rational. They're just acting on their emotions and their instincts. So they haven't thought it all the way through. But the thing that if, the, if you get them to a moment where they're thinking about it, they will say something like, well, we're just highly evolved animals anyway. So why does it matter? See what I mean? I'm just acting according to my instincts. All other animals act according to instincts. Why are you telling me I can't act according to my instincts? See, but you have to get into that point first. Most people are just emotional, right? It's more of just why well, I feel this way, or I was abused as a child, or people have always tried to keep me down, or the man is oppressing me, or whatever it is. And so they usually have, it's more irrational, or it's more emotional or emotive, but really the actual philosophical underpinning that justifies it to give you a, a, a complete coherent philosophy is that imminent frame point. So that's one, and this is gonna sound old school a little bit, but it hasn't ever really gone away. But in apologetics, which is defending the faith, 
we've been talking and defending the Christian faith against atheism and secular humanism and materialism for over 100 years. This is not new. This is going all the way back to Darwin and others. Okay. Now, there are some who have made their peace with Darwin in other ways and said, well, he doesn't necessarily preclude God and stuff like that. I'm not getting into the creation evolution debate. What I'm saying is, is that we've been having this discussion for over 100 years. It's just people forget that this is still around and it's what's enabling some of this other stuff to happen. Because if you admit that there's a God, then this other stuff, we can we can have a conversation now. Because now we can say, okay, you admit that God exists. The question then is, does he have weight on your life? Does he matter? That's where the real conversation is. I put that in your parentheses under the third one. He says this too. Even though many Christians acknowledge that God exists or that there's such a thing as salvation, they live their lives as if he doesn't exist. So in other words, yeah, I acknowledge it with my mouth, but it doesn't change my behavior and I still live like everybody else. See what that means? So in other words, even though, see, that's different than like, say, the Middle Ages, where even people that were skeptical or like trying to rebel against God, the presence of the transcendent order was always there. Like any community you went into had a huge cathedral, for example, right? And so everybody around would say, you know, if God wills, X. If God will, because it was part of the culture. Now, there was... Every era has its flaws. It's not like the Middle Ages were perfect. There are big problems then too, because we're still flawed human beings. We, we are where we are, right? Every era of history has good things and bad things. But there is a weightedness of that transcendent order. We've lost that weight. We may acknowledge it with our mouths, but as we live our daily lives, we act as if God doesn't matter. We only do on Sundays, right? And so that even Christians have bought into this, even if we don't say it or believe it, we live like it's true. And, he, and in the book, this book, and I have it over here, and I saw the, the lilies brought this in. In this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he, that's, this is that his kind of thing that he did as this was coming out. In this book, he calls this, and it's based on other philosophers, the social imaginary. I know I mentioned this at the beginning, but it's the idea that it's the stuff people just assume in their daily lives without even thinking about it. You know, colloquialism, slang, stuff like we just assume it. Right. Does that make sense? And so he talks about that in this imminent frame idea. Even Christians, because we live in the culture in which we live, assume this imminent frame without even knowing we assume it. Right. And so that's kind of his point is that it's, it's kind of unwinding that. And you're getting some hints on where we're going to go in terms of uh, what do we do about it? One of the things is uh, recovering that idea of God's transcendence and the idea that God's uh, also omnipresent. He's everywhere. Recovering that idea and living like we know that. You know, who are you when no one's looking? You know, some of those sort of ideas. All right, let's talk about the law stuff. Any comments on this? I, mean, I just want to mention that just kind of to help you start thinking in terms of where we're going to go in terms of what do we do about it. All right, so here comes the law case. Is this. I want to look at just three things in modern society where we can see the, the fingerprints of these traits, these trends that I've been tracing. Things that perhaps caught some of us unawares. And did so because we didn't realize that what we witness today in dramatic court decisions, for example, is simply the latest stage in a process that's been going on for a long, long time. The process that I've been describing in these lectures. I want to look at law. I want to look briefly at ethics. I want to look at freedom of speech. I have about 15 minutes remaining, so inevitably my treatment of each of these is going to be very superficial. But I hope it gives you a little taste of the significance of the ideas that we've been tracing out in previous lectures. Legally, where does this expressive individualism 
and this psychological happiness, where does that uh, come to play in, in the law of the land at this point? Well, here I just want to refer briefly to a very famous statement by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the opinion in the 1992 Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Bob Casey Sr., Governor of Pennsylvania, had uh, written into law a rule that placed some restrictions on abortion clinics, and Planned Parenthood uh, brought a, a case against him that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in the judgment in favor of Planned Parenthood and against Casey in this matter, Anthony Kenny penned these lines. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. It's an interesting sentence. Interesting couple of sentences. It's oddly incoherent, of course. The state has to define personhood at some level. That's why it considers murder to be wrong. There is an assumption of what it is to be a person that lies behind statutes against murder that are enforced and imposed by the states. But what's more interesting is not the philosophical incoherence, if you like, of what's being said here. What's really interesting is the definition of personhood he's working with. Let me repeat the sentence. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Think about that. That's the notion of liberty, of expressive individualism. That line could have been written by Nietzsche could have been written by, Mar uh, by uh, uh, Oscar Wilde, could have been written in some ways by Rousseau. Anthony Kennedy isn't inventing that in 1992. Anthony Kennedy is intuiting that in 1992 because the world in which he lives is the world that has been profoundly shaped by the thinking and the ideas of the men and women we've been looking at in this course. It represents, it arises out of a culture where liberty, where freedom, is understood as self-determination. Where meaning is defined by the individual. And where really underlying it are notions of authenticity and psychological happiness that are being allowed to trump everything at this particular point. What that ruling, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, does, we might say, perhaps provocatively, is it establishes in law the kind of expressive individualism we noted in Lecture 1 and traced in subsequent lectures. And that ruling has been foundational to subsequent Supreme Court judgments, particularly relative to the sexual revolution. Think of gay marriage judgment, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, 2015. It's essentially predicated on the rights of the individual to be happy in the way they choose, and the obligation of the state to affirm them in that. Again, that ruling rests on expressive individualism. Make no mistake, at this point, I'm not uh, expressing either approval or disapproval of that ruling. I'm simply saying that that ruling could only have arisen in a culture where the kind of transformations uh, that I've been describing in this course had already taken place and were deeply embedded in the intuitions of how we all think. More recently, the Bostock ruling, 2020, has taken the logic of Anthony Kennedy, the logic of expressive individualism, to its logical conclusion. 
It's predicated on the separation of sex from biological gender. The physical makeup of the body does not define who you are. It's what you feel inside that really counts. That's where reality is truly to be found. What we see around us is the absolute triumph, if you like, of internal psychological conviction over any form of external authority. That brings me to the second area. That's law. Brings me to the second area. All right, so he just did law. So I want to explain a little of this. And if you do have this or get access to this book at some point, it, he's really, this is his chapter nine. He calls it the triumph of the therapeutic, which makes sense, right? Feeling good inside, right? That sort of idea. Um, even Christianity, in some cases, there's a famous quote, I think it's the 80s or 90s. They called it more, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, where God's out there somewhere, but he just wants me to be happy. Right. Kind of Oprahism sort of right. That kind of sort of idea of Christianity. So more a moralistic, therapeutic deism where God just wants me to feel good. He wants me to be healthy and successful and he wants me to be happy. Right. That's kind of that 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 goes all the way back to 80s and 90s. Right. And so that was identified a long time. Many Christians think that's good. Well, God doesn't make mistakes. And if this is how I feel, God must have just made me this way. See, So even Christians get sucked into this sort of thing. OK, the therapeutic. So the triumph of the therapeutic. And he, he opens this with uh, Algeron Swinburne's uh, Hymn of Man. Glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of things. That's what he quotes, is that poem. You see why. So he goes through, and this is fascinating, these court cases. And as you heard, he starts off with Planned Parenthood versus, uh, versus Casey. Very famous court case. Um, in some ways, it's almost more important than Roe v. Wade when it comes to abortion jurisdiction. Okay, so Roe v. Wade established a right to an abortion, not because of personhood or autonomy, but because of the right to privacy. A lot of people don't know that, but it comes from, it's actually based on a previous case called Griswold versus Connecticut, which had to do with birth control. And so when that happened, they, in, the court invented, and I mean that, invented a right to privacy that did not exist in the constitution. In fact, in the case, the majority opinion says, well, it comes from the shadows and penumbras that's around the Constitution that we have this right. In other words, all the other rights imply this right. So in other words, it's not, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution that's spelled out. It's implied by all the shadows cast by the other rights. That's that is in the court decision. You can go look it up. It's Griswold versus Connecticut. So based on that already existing uh, decision from just a few years before, when you get to the early 70s and you get Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you then get this right to privacy argument. So it was not talking about reality. It wasn't talking about the nature of personhood. It wasn't, you get what I'm saying? It only was based on the right to privacy that that was established in, in, in Roe versus Wade. And so Planned Parenthood versus Casey is even more important because then it starts talking about things like personhood and reality. Do you see what I mean? It actually reinforced Roe v. Wade, but at a very much more fundamental level. So this, these court cases that have just shown up at the Supreme Court this year, the Mississippi case and the Texas law and all this stuff that's going on is really, they're saying, is this going to overturn Roe v. Wade? What it really is actually more about is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, it's not about privacy. It's about personhood and whether and viability, you know, and those sort of things, right? Yeah, go for it. Well, what, I think one of the ways to discriminate on this, the Griswold case, uh, which is uh, contraceptives, it, it kind of, if I remember my constitutional law correctly, it kind of stems from, uh, you know, illegal search and seizure, you know, your 
Right, or a married couple that's trying to buy something. Right, right. right. That, right. That's kind of where the privacy comes from. Whereas this, uh, this right now, right here by Kennedy, the right to define one's own concept that exists. I don't know which one of the Bill of Rights or, yeah. or any of the sections in the Constitution that would emerge from. Right. Yeah. No, it's 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 interesting. But you're right. The, if you want more detail, you can you can ask me later. And I can give you some resources. But he's right. Griswold versus Connecticut. It was about they had uh, they uh, birth control in Connecticut was illegal at the time. And the reason was is they were trying to get uh, they were trying to make it hard to be immoral. Because they were not they were trying to, for lack of a better term, forgive me for saying, but it's like they were trying to avoid hookup culture because it was enabling people to be immoral. They were trying to encourage marriage. And so they had this law. And so it was a married couple that was using contraceptives and they said well that's kind of like a private decision amongst couples you see where they're you see the issue that this was is and so the law had to do with that's why they called it privacy but then what they did is they took that and then applied it to abortion see the leap they made okay that's from griswold to roe v wade now we get to this one and it's like this leap even further forward about you know now it's all existence itself is all just your own personal decision and privacy so there's a whole series of cases this builds up on which should show you by the way and that's kind of the point he's making but this stuff is not happening in a vacuum. This is not like something that's just in, that the Supreme Court invented overnight or something. There have been cultural things that have been building up over decades, even getting into the 60s and 70s, that go back to all the thinkers we've been looking at. Nietzsche, Freud, Darwin, Marx. You see what I'm saying? This has been building for a while. It's just it finally hits the popular culture 60, 70, 80 years later, when actually more people now start holding those things. It's one thing to be a thinker and come up with some crazy ideas, right? It's going to take a while for your ideas to catch on. But once you get to that third or fourth generation, now you get court decisions. See what I mean? So that's why this is important. So you can see this is not like the court's just imposing some new reality. They're just recognizing a social imaginary that already exists in most people's brains. Okay? So that's, that's important to kind of say that. So anyways, he does a good job pointing out how incoherent this is because the court's saying, well, we can't really decide what personhood is, but we do know what a murder is. Okay, wait a minute. You see what I mean? Right. They're, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to avoid the hard discussion and try to kind of cart, chart this. Well, this is just kind of up to everybody else. We're, we just want everybody to be individually, have individual liberty. Okay, so why does that matter? Right? They, so in other words, it's a way of trying, and the court really since the 60s and 70s has been doing a lot of this. Technicalities, do we have jurisdiction? How can we try to please everybody? You know what I'm saying? They've been really trying hard not to make a hard decision or try to maximize everybody's individual choices without actually saying something that actually is transcendent. And you can see why, right? Um, and then what happens now then is what the courts tried to do, and again, kind of incoherently, it said that in law, the only thing that's illegal is preventing people from having their own ways, basically. So in other words, discrimination or oppression, those are the only things that are illegal as defined by people who say they're experiencing it because they can't be their true expressive selves. Okay, so this means it's logical then when you get to Orbigerfell versus Orbigerfell, there we go, versus Hodges or Bostock, those two other court decisions he mentions. This is from, so in his book, he actually does more than this. He talks about Lawrence versus Texas, 2003. That was about sodomy laws in Texas that were overturned. I don't know if any of you remember that decision, but 2003, that was a big deal. 2013, uh, U.S. versus Windsor, that was the one about the Defense of Marriage Amendment that was uh, or a law that Bill Clinton signed in the 1990s. And it was basically an overturning of that federal law. And then you get to 2015. This is from the ruling. I want to read this really quick. A first premise of the court's relevant precedence is that the right to personal choice regarding marriage 
is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. Listen to that very carefully. I'll say it again. This is from the majority opinion, 2015. A first premise of the court's relevant precedence, and that's again, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Grizzle versus Connecticut. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Precedence is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. That means you are your own self or your own, and I'm going to be, this is where I'm going to say a little bit of a Christian worldview. You're your own God, basically. Because what it means is you define your reality, you define your meaning, you define your own existence. And so at the heart of liberty, this is Kennedy, you define it for yourself. And so from a Christian worldview, this is where I'm going to point this out. You have become a God unto yourself at this point because you determine your reality, not what God has made you to be, not what the universe says you are, not what society says you are, or what your community says you are, or what your parents even say you are. It's whatever you say you are. So individual autonomy is one of the first things that the court uses because now you decide what is meaningful for you, right? And that's just part of the expressive individualism, okay? It's inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. And then it says the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in importance to the committed individuals. Notice that it's not defining marriage. It's just saying that it's whatever two individuals want it to be. The court does not want to define marriage because that would say there's a transcendent order to things, right? We're not going to define marriage. We're instead going to say it's just two people and whatever they want it to be because that's individual autonomy. If you define marriage, that would actually be a precedent or that would actually put into law that there actually is such a thing as marriage that can be defined. The only definition they can come up with is just two people. Now, of course, this, the part of me that's a little bit coy is say, why limit it to two people now? Why, why isn't that arbitrary? What if people expressively inside only have happiness in a plural marriage? Who's going to decide? You see what I'm saying? And so you could make the exact same arguments in this argument for polygamy or polyamory or whatever term you want to use, plural marriage. You could. There's no reason. Listen to it. A first premise of the court's relevant precedence is the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. Okay, well, four autonomous individuals got together and decided that was a marriage. See? And so if it's if marriage is whatever individuals want it to be, you can't outlaw polygamy. You can't. There's no logical reason for it based on this sort of reasoning. And then they try to bail it out and say, well, it's just two people. Well, how, why limit it to two people? I gear, and I, I can't, can't guarantee because I'm not a prophet. But I would, I would wager money that in my lifetime, and really probably some of your lifetime, in the next decade, 10, 15 years, you will see a polygamy case at the U.S. court. You will. It's coming. Because how can you justify it now? How can you just, based on the logic, say Supreme Court precedent, based on what you said, court, in 2015, how can you deny my plural marriage? See what I mean? Yeah, go for does, it. Does the Supreme Court ever back out of their precedents? They, they can, but it's very rare. And that's actually what one of the in the in the latest abortion hearings with the Mississippi law, the solicitor general of Mississippi or the attorney general, can't remember who it is, um, said that he's like, there are ways in which the court has gotten cases wrong and has returned them. A great example is Plessy versus Ferguson. Right. And then you get things like Brown versus Board of Education. So Plessy versus Ferguson, I don't know if you remember this, that says separate but equal doctrine, in other words, mm -hmm. and that created all the all the segregation in the South, basically, as legal. Red and then Scott. in Brown, then you, what was that? Dred Scott. Yeah, Dred Scott, right? The freed slave in 1915. Then he, he sued. And then the court basically said he's not a person. He's just property. He's not a U.S. citizen. That's 1850s. They've overturned those. Yes. So it has, it is possible, but it's very rare. 
And so because it's so rare, you know that this is going to be a court case. Okay, so that's again, I'm, I'm talking about this. I'm doing a lot of King of the Less stuff right now, but I'm doing it to show you how this modern cell stuff has real world implications that you're experiencing in current events. I mean, this is it is. I mean, this all connects. You can't divorce these things. And I say this mm -hmm. over and over to my students, but we as adults, for some reason, forget it. Ideas have consequences. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we have to say it over and over and over to ourselves. Ideas have consequences. Okay. Uh, the Bostock case, transgenderism is the next logical step because if marriage can be whatever you want it to be, then gender and sex can be whatever you want it to be also because it's how you perceive yourself. And so that's individual autonomy again, right? I determine my own existence. Remember the quote from Kennedy, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Okay, well, I'm really, even though I have boy parts, I'm really a woman. That's my concept of existence. It's just the next logical step. Now, oddly... And he talks about this, and I don't want to, because I'm recording, I don't want to get into too much detail here. But the T and the LGBT is actually a complete contradiction to the L and the G. How can you be a lesbian if you don't know what a woman is? Do you see what I'm saying? But because they're taking on the man, they're considered like co-conspirators, like, you know what I'm saying? But at its heart, it actually contradicts the other one. Because those two other state, those other terms are incoherent. If transgender is, if gender is just a spectrum, how can you be gay or lesbian? Think about it. Yeah. Right. So just again, he has a whole chapter on it. I don't want to get a lot of detail in the recording on this, but it's just something to think about. Yeah, go for it. How can they take on the man if there's no definition of a man? Correct. And so you have to assume the stereotype to say there isn't a stereotype. It's an mm -hmm. argument that blows itself up. Mm -hmm. We have time at the end. I'll show you what would you say on this. It's hilarious. Actually, I showed you one of them where he says, I don't know where North is, but I know I'm going South. <laughs> That's basically what they're saying. It's, an, it's not a coherent statement, but, they, but you have to buy it because of expressive individualism and inner psychological happiness, even if it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. What matters is if they're happy. Because that's the, that's the real thing. doesn't matter if it's incoherent. doesn't matter if it's not good for them. Even if you want to try to give puberty blockers to a 15-year-old, right? Even if you think that's wrong, it's not your choice. It's their choice because it's their autonomy, their reality. You can see where this, I mean, this all real world implications. Radical onset gender dysphoria. Have you ever heard that term before? Some of you might. It's a thing. Especially girls. Between the, It's the awkward phase. All of a sudden deciding that they're not really girls. Just all of a sudden. There's been studies done on this. Um, and actually, there's, thankfully, there's been some pushback um, in, you know, like pediatricians and others that have pushed back on this. But I mean, it's a thing. World Magazine, Christian Magazine had a whole article on this. Radical onset gender dysphoria, where girls at like that 12, 13, 14 range all of a sudden decide they're boys. Okay. <laughs> what I like to tell, I've told, told my high school girls when they're like seniors, it's like, you were never at an awkward phase, were you ever? <laughs> you know, and, they, and they, get, they get my point. You know, they're like, so wouldn't it have been kind of harmful if your parents would have said, oh, maybe they are really a boy. I should stop their puberty right now. And even my high school girls are like, that's awful. Like, even they admit that that's wrong. Like, without it, they don't even have to think about it. My high school seniors are like, that's that's the worst. They're like, why would you ever do that? Even some of my most, like, more progressive ones that aren't necessarily from grace, you know, but they're in the high school, even they recognize, yeah, no, that's a, that's not, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> even they're recognizing that that's a bridge too far. But my point to them, and this is where I bug them, and I was just like, well, why is it wrong? Go, you're saying it's wrong, and I agree with you, but why? Because now you've got another worldview issue, right? Because so it's my that's my way of messing with them a little bit. It actually works pretty well. Usually, usually they appreciate that. So 
my government class usually is pretty fun. And my apologetics. I teach both apologetics and government for the seniors. And it's awesome because I get them in both the kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left. And they get to see how we make all these connections. It's kind of fun. So they get mad. Second semester, I start I like closing all the circles and they start seeing all the connections and they get some of them get mad. It's fun. All right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so you're getting the idea of why this is important in law. And you could go through a bunch of other court cases. But again, and it's not, again, the biblical worldview. This is a Sunday school. So I want to kind of emphasize the biblical worldview on this. And in Romans 1, I got, I got to keep coming back to Romans 1. If there's a passage to read about our time, it's Romans 1, where people worship the creation instead of the creator. Right? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the image of the immortal God with an image created in man, right? So it's this Romans when they exchange it for themselves. And then what does God do? He gives them up. He gives them up. And in the King James, it says a reprobate mind. I'll never forget that phrase, a reprobate mind. In other words, they've corrupted themselves that they're, they're broken in their thinking. And then you look at the world you live in, and we're seeing Romans 1 in action, even in the force of law. Okay, so if there's a if there is a scripture passage, you should just read back and forth. He Paul uses words like natural and unnatural. Oh boy, don't say that. <laughs> See, he does. He says yes. natural and unnatural because that assumes that there's such a thing as natural for everybody. That's a transcendent order. You can't have a transcendent order because otherwise you're accountable to that transcendent order. You can't say the word natural. Instead, it's well, that's what's natural for you. So, yeah, your truth or what's natural feel and it's about feelings, not about natural law, but feelings. We'll get to that when we get to the things to recover. One of the things that what we need to get better at, and the Roman church actually has helped on this, at least their official statements, not you know all their statements, but the official statements, they're really strong in natural law. And so they have some resources and stuff that I'll point you to that might be helpful that way um, as far as that goes. And we have that in our tradition. We just forgot it. Lutherans have had natural law since the beginning. I have a whole book on this from Concordia, actually, uh, about natural law. And we just lost that because our culture doesn't talk that way because of that social imaginary. All right. So you can see that I have that underlying. What you feel inside is now where reality is found. And now the law has to enforce this and stop those who prevent it. So if you try to get if, if you disagree, for example, on some of these things, it's because you have a phobia. We're going to psychoanalyze you now. Right. So it's the reason you don't like those people that are, you know, uh, dressing uh, that's they're not conforming to their their biological sex. is because you're transphobic. <laughs> the reason you don't like gay marriage is because you're homophobic. The reason you don't. So we're going to psychoanalyze you and explain it away because nobody in their right mind could possibly disagree with this. Because after all, reality is just what everybody wants it to be. That you would say that your reality is also true for them, that's oppressive. So something must be wrong. You must be hateful or you must be, right? See how that works? So again, it's, it has consequences. All right. I want to get to actually, we can just save that because I can just show you um, the ethics thing here. I'll show you what would you say. Um, anybody have it? Because we'll, so next week we'll finish. Keep your sheets. We'll finish ethics, freedom of speech, and concluding thoughts, because those are shorter. If you look, he's about halfway through. He goes through those through really quick and then kind of has some concluding thoughts. And then it's where do we go from here? That's, that's what I want to spend most of next week on is what can we do about it? If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.